Hi, I'm Deborah K. Farrell, and I'm coming to you from the recording studios at Finger Lakes Community College. I'm a professor of English, and I have as my guest Dr. Adriel Mitchell from Nazareth College and Sue Sliven, librarian extraordinaire from our own Charles Meter Library. And we're here to discuss Alison Bechtel's Fun Home. It's a graphic memoir that has had lasting power. It was made into a Broadway musical, and it is still as relevant today as when it was written in 2006. Dr. Mitchell is an expert on the graphic novel, and I invited her here to discuss uh, the book on a intellectual, artistic, and uh, visceral way. Uh, She is our technical expert. Uh, Sue and I were a bit reluctant to read the novel. Um, I said, hey, Sue, why don't you read this? And she kindly agreed. And we were both skeptical of the graphic memoir as an art form and this was really a transforming experience for me. So, Adriel, can you speak a little bit about um, the graphic elements of the memoir? Yes, with pleasure. Hello, Deborah Kay and Sue. I'm really delighted to be here talking with you about a book that I love very much and a form, a medium, that I think people don't understand does lots of amazing things and can be as sophisticated intellectually, artistically as the forms that we usually associate with so-called high culture. So I would just say some beginning things about the format. It, the graphic narrative globally is a form that is seen in France and Belgium and South Africa and Japan Um, in many nations, in Mexico, as a porous and flexible form. So for children, for adults, nonfiction and fiction, memoirs, novels, you name it. The United States has been slower to see it in this way, and it really was the the form of graphic memoir that I think brought it over the edge. And just the way we were talking before, before we went on the air, a little bit about the whether one has been reading comics or graphic novels or not. None of us sitting at this table right now were readers of comics as children. So we came to it as adults. And I think a lot of people are finding that the memoir form, because it's a intimate look at someone's life, it changes when you see things in image form and text form at the same time. So you really can do, it does magnificent things with allowing for what's called a dual track narrative. You can say one thing in image and then in captions and speech balloons, a whole other thing can be happening and it really works for autobiography because you can represent childhood in the past, let's say in the pictures, but in text, in the words, have an adult narrator who's thinking about it and reflecting on it and um, processing things. So you get to look at both of those things and take them in at the same time. Well, Sue, what was your initial reaction? My biggest take was the relationship between Allison and her father, and I felt she really showed in many ways that he didn't really parent her and that he didn't know how to parent her. Um, so I felt that he might have been using the literature that he pushed on her as a parenting tool. Mm-hmm. And 
that was the only stand-in. I don't know if he didn't want to be a parent or just didn't know how to do it, but whenever he seemed to show, quote, affection, even with the, the boys he brought home, it was always about books. And that was like his stand-in for, this is how I want you to be, so go read this book. Yeah, I was thinking about that um, myself. I was thinking about how much the literature shapes really the memoir. I am in particular interested in uh, Allison's interest in Proust. She said that uh, Proust had an inverted relationship with his chauffeur, uh, Albert, whom he named Albertine in the book. And um, I really didn't think about the inversions of so many subjects. Uh, Adriel's article mentions that this is an inversion of the Icarus Didalis myth. And uh, I kept paid extra careful attention to it this time. And I saw that there were inversions all over the book. Yeah, and if I can just keep talking about that inversion thing because it's such an ex- it's such an interesting word the invert of course the 19th century term for homosexual for gay they they use that word as if sexuality could be upside down tweaked messed with it, it's just a really interesting place to start and for Allison the way in which she's using the literature is to show that I think I'm thinking also about what you said Sue too that the the you get to the relationship with the parent through the literature. And her father, as an English teacher, as a high school English teacher, that that's his vocabulary. So he doesn't even have to show affection. He can just be sharing books. And remember, he's delighted when she's in college and she's reading texts. And now she finds a way, Allison finds a way to share that with her father. And now they have this other language that they're speaking about. But then if you start parsing and you really look at at Proust, at um, Oscar Wilde, what she's quoting, if you look at the, the Icarus legend, one by one, she starts to figure out that all of those associations we have of who's, who's parent and child, or who's in power or who's not, or who's male, who's female, masculine, feminine, every binary gets flipped, which she's not doing this like heavily theoretically. She's just showing it through the literary figures. And I, I think it's fascinating. And it, it allows for, um, it's a polyvalent text, right? We can read ju- we can read Fun Home, but we can also go back and read the texts, The Importance of Being Earnest. We can read Ulysses again. We can read the Icarus legend anew because we're looking at it through the way that Allison sees her um, relationship. So it's very literary that she would have that kind of feeling about her father, I think. Um, Sue, do you think uh, that's true? Did you see it as a literary memoir, uh, even though it's a graphic novel? You said that you thought that Allison's father parented her through books. Yeah, it, it was hard for me to read because I didn't get most of those illusions. I'd look at it and be like, I didn't read that. Didn't read that. Didn't read that. <laughs> you know, and I didn't really have the time to sit down and say, okay, I'm going to go over here now and educate myself so I can figure out what she's talking about. But just in a nutshell, when I think about how you parent someone, he didn't do any of those things. You know, but when he wanted to show his love, he read this, read that. And even in his his love letters to his his wife, 
you know, quotes from books, talking about books. I feel like we're this scene in this book. And it, it, he just seems to be a substitute. And when yeah. he later says to Allison, uh, don't be so quick to label yourself. Mm. I, it starts to really seem like not only is he using them to do what he should be doing as a parent, but he's also kind of hiding. You know, that's mm. he, he's made that his his image and well don't label yourself and he doesn't really want to come to the realization of if she comes to the realization of who he is then he might have to also come to his realization that's going to kind of burst his bubble mm-hmm. so just his his use of literature and i don't know maybe overuse i think he used it too much as a proxy or, or a crutch i think that's really true she shows that by Revealing, This is a very literary and theatrical family. Helen, the mother, is an actor. He is an English teacher. They're steeped in text, and instead of seeing it only positively, yeah. I like what you're saying, Sue, about a, it's a, a way of hiding or um, escaping into it and not doing the natural things. And I think that might have something to do also with the discomfort of that marriage, where they're almost in love. He's in love with being in love. So he's quoting many passages, and, and Helen is having... You know, Allison's mother is having a positive experience of that, but it's all one step removed or many steps removed from actual feeling or um, being really rooted in that relationship. And now here's Allison, the daughter, experiencing some of the same thing. So it's kind of like, "Mm, not real. What what struck me as one of the most pivotal moments in the um, graphic memoir was um, Allison's focus on the great Gatsby. Do you remember that? Somewhat, yeah, sure. And uh, how her father looked like uh, the Robert Redford adaptation of the film. And he is a fascinating character to me, but I responded to the book on a more visceral level. We were talking earlier about our responses to the book, and for me, it was very personal. I thought it was a novel about discovering oneself, and then Sue said it's a novel about a father and a daughter, and Adrielle, what do you think? I think it's all of those things and more mostly because Alison Bechtel herself is, her identity is so complex. And she spent hours, she takes, her method is she takes photographs of herself in the position of anyone that she's um, speaking about in her memoirs, and she'll take hundreds in an, in an obsessive way, hundreds of images to try to capture a body position, mm-hmm. um, a feeling or a mood in family members other than herself. So there's this seeking to embody and then draw and then write about what it what it means to occupy the lesbian position, the daughter position, the adult position, the child whose father may have committed suicide. It appears he has committed suicide. And so trying to come to terms with that, trying to figure out how you decide what your identity is based on the things that you've learned and read. She, she's a learner, so she's, mm. she's looking for it, for um, 
self-reflection in all these ways. So there's all this mirroring going on, and that's one of the things I like. And another thing I was thinking also about um, this question of do we need to know the allusions in a text, the graphic narrative format allows her to, for example, pull a page from a text like Great Gatsby or um, one of the other texts, Importance of Being Earnest, to show you the passage, the paragraph, so it becomes rather easy to, you don't have to necessarily go out and read the other text. You can actually follow her journey through what she's decided to show us and to share, um, image-based, image because it's in the picture itself. And then her commentary, again, can be in the words. So um, it's very, very multi-textual at the same time as it's one straight narrative of, of a child coming to terms with all these things. Well, that's what I thought, too. And it's interesting that you mentioned her uh, creative process. With Fun Home, she took over 4,000 pictures, uh, Polaroids. She is very controlled in the way that she creates the drawings of this memoir. Uh, another thing that I thought you uh, said that was very interesting, Adrielle, was how you can see Allison on one page as a child, one page as an adult, um, and it seems to flow effortlessly for me. As someone who wasn't familiar with the graphic novel, I found myself reading it and rereading it again, trying to put the pictures with the words. Right. Um, how do you feel about that, Sue? Did I mean, it's kind of like it's... Not composed in a linear way, for sure, but on the pages, the pictures and the words, you know, don't come in a um, sequential fashion. I think it made it easier to read because when you have just a regular book in front of you, that's all you have to do. You just read, 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 read. But with this format... You can read the boxes, you can read the text, you can read what the narrator or the omniscient person says, and then you can study the picture and see how it fits together with what's being presented, and it slows you down. It makes you yes. sit down and actually think about what you're reading and put it all together. So I, I kind of liked that because we had a tendency to read a regular book of text and just kind of burn through it and not really think about what you just looked at. Yeah, so. so you found yourself going back and looking at the pictures, too, and trying to piece it all together? Yeah, I, I took my time between each section and really kind of tried to ingest what I was seeing in each frame before going on to the next one and kind of get it all in. And, and then, okay, good, now I can go to the next one. And what did it all mean? Okay. I'm so glad that you've raised this question of the structure of a nonlinear narrative because it is, she really takes advantage of that. I'm going to go a little nerdy French comics theory now. So there's a theorist named Terry Gronstein who talks about, he uses the term iconic solidarity. And this means the relationship among images that are non-contiguous, meaning not necessarily just on the page when you're looking at, let's say, four panels or eight panels with a two-page spread. It's everything that's in your memory about what has come before in the text and what will come after it once you've read the whole thing, and you move around in your head connecting almost subconsciously some of those images. So pictures, um, not just the panel and how it shows a background and a foreground or that character, but also small things like we had talked before we went on the air about uh, the mother figure, Helen, and how often she's smoking or looking 
looking chagrined, unhappy, looking out a window, not looking at her family. So that's a very small element that you can start to connect across the pages, again, in a nonlinear way, and make much more meaning out of it. So you're not just rooted in, um, as Sue, as you were saying, you're reading, when you're reading a written text, you just keep going, moving in a, a linear fashion. Here, it encourages slowing down absolutely, something I say to my students constantly, this format demands it, but on top of that, moving around out of sequence. So going back or up to other pages and finding groups that have that kind of iconic solidarity. The word he uses for that is arthrology, which means um, everything all interlinked and connected, almost like you can imagine a skeleton and parts and bones and muscles moving together. So it's this, it's this living form that you move around in, um, in a mobile way. Um, I don't know if both of you recognize this, but I wrote uh, about it in my article on Alison Bechdel. It was how the picture of Roy, the babysitter, was like, um, what is it you call the centerfold of the book? Yes, Did yes. you notice that? Oh, absolutely. And it yeah. comes right and in the middle of the romantically, book. Romantically, like the, the way in which the photograph is drawn is, is this highly idealized picture. That's so true. Mm. What did that make you think? I, th I thought that was kind of like the defining moment in uh, the memoir. I thought that it's when Allison came to terms with herself as a lesbian. Um, her, the way that she became a lesbian was very bookish. You know, she read books. Right. Um, it wasn't really something of feeling. She wrote her mother and father and told them she was a lesbian, although she had never had any experiences. Yes. And um, she read Khaled and books on coming out. And as you've mm -hmm. said, this is a very bookish novel. And I thought the way that she came out was also very bookish also. <laughs> but uh, the picture... Uh, or the centerfold, it seems to be when everything comes together, like Allison's acceptance of who she is and her acceptance of her father. If you'll remember that the year was blotted out and she doesn't yes. remember why. Yes, I there's some conjecture. He's a high school teacher. Roy is probably 17, mm. 16. So before the legal issues come up around that, I think there's the privacy and secrecy issues that that feed into that. It's funny. So you have a, a rather positive take on that moment. I saw, um, I saw it as a revelation of a private, this is her father after all, right? And this is his, this is his sexual, the photograph that he took um, is again, a romantic and sexualized image. She's the daughter looking at that. So I see it also as an intimacy that's almost too much of an intimacy mm -hmm. and, and a crux point so that where it is about in the center of the book, it also could be the complexity of this because she does identify with her father in many ways too. So there's, there's all the ways in which you navigate being comfortable and uncomfortable with what you're discovering, what you're learning. I like also, Deborah Kay, what you said before about the bookishness of her, even her own coming out process prior to having real, so-called real experience. She's like, oh, yes, you know, I recognize myself in these texts. I will now take that identity on. But the, the navigation of this is somewhat abstract, uncomfortable, trying things on, being 
resisting some parts of identity, resisting interpreting her father's actions, a lot of uncomfortable psychology in it, which is why I find the text so compelling that she can she can do both. She can show joy and kind of horror and repulsion and fear and all the emotions come through in it. Well, there's a sequence in the book where she is visited by her cousin and they try on uh, her father's old clothes and uh, she feels comfortable and she wants to sustain that feeling of comfort. But in the end, she is disappointed because she cannot. And um, I remember also a scene that was pivotal to me was when she's at the diner with her father when she's five years old. And uh, a butch lesbian walks in and Allison immediately identifies with her. And her father says, is that what you want to be? Mm -hmm. And she thought, yes. Do you remember that scene in the book? And, of course, it becomes this great song about keys in the musical. Right. So it, it is a p- very pivotal scene. Yeah. And then, of course, the, the inverse of that, her father trying to put barrettes and dresses on her all the time. What was that? You know, we're, we're I think, meant to ask as readers, what's happening here? What is clothing? Mm-hmm. You know, the appearance you take on. And why is he making the choices that he's making for his own appearance, but also for hers and... Conversely, why is she wanting to, she admires, she's looking at clothing catalogs as a kid and noticing men's suits and shirts and the details of texture. And this is deeply um, pleasurable to her. So there's this symbolic thing happening, I think, with, with clothing and appearance. Yeah, that's as opposed to her first grade picture. I don't know if you remember that scene in the novel where she draws herself and her first grade photograph, and she's wearing black velvet, and yes, uh, she and a also, ribbon in her hair. I think. Yeah, she likens uh, the family to the Adams family, right. uh, which I thought was real interesting because they do live in a four thousand foot Gothic <laughs> revival home and, and mausoleum and and mausoleum and <laughs> funeral home. Yeah, mm, it's it's kind of hard to see Bruce as. A sympathetic character, though, don't you think? I mean, Sue, you and I were talking about this earlier, and, you know, you said that you don't know many lesbians who have had good relationships with their fathers. Right. And Well, anecdotally, I I feel that, you know, I haven't done any research. I don't have any hard data. (laughs) But um, I can't think of anybody I know who has a... a relationship with their father that seems it, it just there's a disconnect you know mm-hmm. I felt like I didn't have a real strong connection with my father um, my wife and I are about the same age so our parents are about the same age same sort of relationship we're tight mm-hmm. with our mothers but when you talk to your father it's like do you balance your checkbook yep how's your car running mm-hmm. good <laughs> And that's kind of it. Mm. So it's it's in it. I can look back and think of incidents where I had three older brothers and I could do what they could do. Uh, I played baseball with them. Okay, now I want to play baseball on a team because I play baseball and I could not play baseball. So why can't I play baseball? But they can play baseball. So that you know that line was drawn, 
And that that was a decision made by my father. You will not play baseball. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, so then it just kind of got tense from there. <laughs> <laughs> I think I understand that, too. Uh, I was supposed to grow up and be a Southern Belle. And then when uh, I finally mm-hmm. came out to uh, my father, well, actually, my mother told my father they were divorced. And uh, it's only been recently that he's accepted me. He's 82, and probably in the last five years, he's accepted me for what he calls my life choice. (laughs) Yeah, and for Allison in particular, this is a, there's a lack of clarity about simply, if you go the Freudian route on this and think Mm -hmm. about, okay, so the son has to, kill the father, marry the mother, turn to women, daughters are supposed to turn to men. All of these expectations and associations around whom one should love gets turned on its head for the lesbian daughter. For for Allison, there's a the identification is not with mother, it's with father. So it's a fraught, I think, it's yeah. a fraught relationship with the father, but also a deep identification. And I, if anything... She needed a whole second book, Are You My Mother, to actually think through someone who was paler in, in um, existence for her than mother. So both relationships are, are problematic and complex for her, both father and mm-hmm. mother, which doesn't help when you're trying to figure out just simply, who am I? Who, who can I go be with? What is okay and natural? And how do I then relate back to my primary family to my original family right i felt like she was trying to draw him out as an ally yes, it's like i know yes. who you are now and even though he knew that she knew he was unwilling to exactly ever go there exactly so she's like oh yeah. good now we have this thing in common so yeah. we we can we can have a connection here and he kind of rejects it and so Why do you think that is? Well, I, accepting it means he's got to accept it, mm-hmm. who he is, and it's going to take down his, his house of cards that he built. Mm-hmm. You know, he's got this beautiful home that's like a museum, okay. and, um, you know, we do this because it's beautiful, and it's all that kind of false sort of environment that he's built, and admitting it, even though everybody already knows, if he admits it to himself, yeah, then that's going to take everything down and, and destroy his whole sense of self. Yeah. She calls him an artificer. Yeah. Right. Adriel? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. I thought the way the book was structured was interesting. Um, again, in the fact that it was nonlinear, but I cared more about her as a person. I wasn't aware of how powerful the father was. I. You know, uh, there were the traumatizing events about having to go to the fun home. Um, There's one scene in particular where there's a car wreck with three people and her father brings uh, his children to see the dead boy Mm -hmm. who's around Allison's own age. And his skin is so gray and his hair is yellow and it's in a crew cut and it's so bright against him. And I wondered Mm -hmm. if that were you know, just normal for, you know, someone who grows up in that kind of environment or if Bruce had, you know, more, um, I'm trying to think of the word, if he had, 
if, if it was almost as if punishing them or something. Yeah, it's an interesting question because she seems like not only does he bring her to see, but at points she becomes his assistant. Right. right? And obviously this does not sit very well with her. <laughs> she shows it in image and in text that this is deeply uncomfortable and probably really surreal. Uh, imagine, I guess it's the 70s mm. and she's living the life that she's living as a child, but oh, by the way, on weekends, she's working on cadavers with with her father right. <laughs> as, a, as a young child. It's not even adolescence, really. I feel like it's age 10, 11 that this begins to happen. So, you know, is this is this normal? I think definitely not um, calling it fun home, right. short funeral home. Um, the macabre aspect is, again, it's yet another theme that's running through the text. She was able to put so many in, including that that weird, um, like working with dead bodies and, and parts is unsettling and makes you wonder just how what effect that had on the children and her brothers as well, who are, of course, figures in there, but are not saying very much. She doesn't have them speak. Right. And uh, her first... Uh the first time she sees a naked man is in the funeral home. Do you remember that? Right, he has yes. a gaping hole in the chest. And it's so <laughs> anatomically correct. Yeah. Um, I guess I was surprised by the frankness of how things were portrayed sexually for Allison as she started having her experiences. Um, I was a little bit shocked by the nudity uh, the book was selected as uh, a must-read at the um, Charleston College, and it was banned because it was so controversial. And I think, well, no. what do you think? That's one of the problems. I mean, think about the connotations of the word graphic and how quickly we use that term to say this is too much Um when you have imagery such as oral sex is pictured, genitalia is pictured, if you don't take the book in its in its whole, I mean, it's the whole question of what is pornographic. That's why school, some school districts, some libraries did ban it, because if you just open a text and look at one small part of it, you can be shocked. You can feel this is not, you know, we, we want to keep this away from our children or our teens. Mm. That's also the problem in the United States that the graphic form or the comics format is associated with children. So anytime a text, this this is a text that is not written particularly for children or young adults. It can be read by many, but really it's an adult text. So the those moments that happen for readers of just opening to that and seeing it, they can be shocking. And certainly my students are about to read it in graphic narrative in about two weeks. Am I going to do a trigger warning or say something like there will be nudity or probably not because I, I want them to experience the text as a whole. But that usually comes up as something we discuss of, of for some of them, it's the same response of, okay, I didn't expect this in my um, assigned text in my English class. What is this doing here? So quote unquote, graphically. And then we deal with that. And we, when we talk about it with relation to the text as a whole, which is what you have to do when you're thinking about things that are um, very revealing. So I'm wondering, why did Allison choose to do that? Right. You know, was the purpose to, especially with the, with the cadaver, um, to try and have us have, have the same feeling that she had when she walked in there of shock? 
possibly. I think that's a good way of thinking about it. Also, I do feel she's trying to represent, the visual is good for this. Here's what happened. I haven't processed this fully. I do not know what to make of it entirely. Or this is also my journey coming out. Here are my first, in college, she's showing us her first physical relationship with a girlfriend. And she doesn't have a lot to say about it. She doesn't want to be clinical about it. But in a few panels, she can show it to you. She can show you the experience. You make of it what you will. You're getting this this representation of what she's gone through. Then we can do the interpretation, which Scott McCloud, who is a comic artist and scholar known for his book, Understanding Comics, but he's done other work, talks about the gutters, the area in between panels, between and among panels where we do the thinking. So, so she's given us an awful lot to work with, some of it unsettling, mm-hmm. just as we're beginning to discuss, but um, isn't closing it down, isn't using the voiceover or the um, conversations that take place in it to just tell you what to think about it. It's there. Yeah, she seems there. to leave a lot of things hanging, like the right. picture with Roy. Right. We come right. to our own conclusions on, on why we would have that picture taken. Yeah. Why would Dad take that picture and... Yeah. Well, what is this purpose? She doesn't ever come to a conclusion, so we we get to come to our own. Right, and she yet she showcases it. Right, right. She makes those very big panels, including the oral sex panel. It's rather right. large, so she certainly wants us to look. So it's kind of again. Well, go ahead. I am wanting to say that I think um, in the panels where she is depicted as having sex for the first time, she seems to make a shift as a character into being much happier. In the panels that are drawn before then, she never smiles. But when she discovers her sexuality and there's a pile of books next to them as they're in bed and they're, you know, they're talking, she is laughing out loud. So, um that yeah. was a pivotal moment for me. Yes. Yeah. And But again, she wants to write home about it immediately. <laughs> like, <laughs> this is how to connect to dad again. Like, hey, I'm reading, I'm reading the right books. And oh, maybe I can also tell you about a relationship that is a little bit like the kinds of things that you do. <laughs> like, a little interestingly incestuous. <laughs> well, it is. And uh, she did call her relationship with her father reversal of the Oedipal complex. Right. Um, so, uh, we need to come to an end. We've got so much to discuss still. I feel like we've only scraped the surface of matters because it is so complex. Um, I guess I would ask you, um, Sue, do you think he killed himself? I mean, what do you think about the, the ending of the book? I mean, she seems ambivalent about it and I really don't know. I, I have no answer for that. I think he may have. I I didn't gather that he was in general a happy person. He was a secretive person, and there's a pretty good chance that things came to a head. His wife had enough. Uh, his his daughter was in his face, and that might have been his route out. I I my main description of him would in general be a coward. So I would see him doing something like that. Okay, Andrea, what do you think about it? And I think what's wonderful, again, about the graphic novel format or the comics format is that she was able to show us that it is a deserted country road. She pictures that it's not likely that you would just offhandedly be hit by a truck (laughs) when there's no traffic there at all. And he's used to, he's like dumping, what is like, twigs, (laughs) trees, branches. 
it's silent, deserted country road, trucks coming, not really possible that you're going to just accidentally get hit by a truck in your mid-30s, probably nothing's going wrong in health, et cetera. So there's that. There's the maps that she uses. She draws maps to show us the area. So again, the comics format allows her to bring you into it and to make your own judgment. And that is part of why I do see it as a suicide. It's most likely is because she's doing that because she's standing there and looking at, at that and she's showing that to us. Well, she says in the memoir that if she does not believe it's a suicide, that that loses her last tenuous connection to him. And she doesn't want that to happen. So um, the book was very profound. Uh, Supposedly, Allison is working on a book about physical fitness and how it has played a role in her life. Yeah. Do you know that? No, I'm not aware of that, actually. And uh, But it's been a while. This uh, Are You My Mother came out in 2012, right? Yeah, yeah, it has been a while. So, you know, I'm looking forward to seeing, um, you know, what Bechtel has to present. And, Sue, I guess I would ask you how you feel about reading more graphic novels. Well, I definitely want to read the second one. And I, I don't care how it compares to the first one, but some of the questions that I had while I was reading Fun Home was, what about mom? Is mm-hmm. this all about dad? And it was all about dad. And I didn't know if she was pushed off to the side because it was about dad or because she was pushed off to the side. Mm-hmm. So I'll be interested to read the second one and, and read about mom. Okay, well, we're going to end our podcast now. Uh, Thank you, Adrielle, for coming. Thank you, Sue, for being such a good sport. Absolutely. And I think uh, my next panel is going to be on Flannery O'Connor. She is a writer who is definitely part of the canon, but I think her grotesqueness And her being on the edge of the Protestant South makes her a great candidate for discussion. So thank you, guest. Thank you. Thank you.